I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is law professor Robin Feldman, J.D., and author of Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, The Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices. Prescription drug prices seem to continue to rise, making it difficult for people to afford their medication. Robin Feldman exposes the secret deals and Byzantine methods that support high drug prices. She not only unravels the myriad threads that make up America's drug pricing system, but also suggests ways to help control the problem. She's the Arthur J. Goldberg Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Innovation at UC Hastings College of the Law, San Francisco. She's published four books, over 50 articles, and has been cited by the White House and members of Congress. Her recent piece on the rising costs of prescription drugs in the United States has appeared in the Washington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, this is a big problem here in the, here in the United, maybe globally, but definitely here in the United States. And as you've said, and as you say in your book, Robin, everyone has a limit. Every budget has an end point. But it seems that the pharmaceutical companies and the people who are selling these drugs keep raising and raising the prices. So what's going to happen? What's the end point to all of this? Obviously, this is what you start out discussing in your book. So let's, let's, let's start with that. Every budget has a limit, whether it's a government budget or my wallet. And as a researcher, I I wondered why these prices kept escalating, because economically it doesn't make sense. So I set out to try to figure the system out. It took years, and my book puts these pieces together. What it explains are the secret deals and intrigues of the the drug industry, and, and here are the two biggest causes of high drug prices. The first is the secret deals that pharmaceutical companies make with everyone up and down the distribution chain that maintain their monopolies. And second, the patent walls that drug companies create, piling protections on over and over again. It's those two things that end up straining our wallets when we go to pick up medication. What I, I was going to say, what, are you, what is the uh, motivation behind these, these two ways of operating with, in the pharmaceutical industry? Let's take the first one. Um, what 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 is the sure. motivation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. So one has to understand that that these are profit making entities. Uh, they are going to act in their own self interest, and we can't expect anything different. If the system sets up incentives that drive them into these behaviors, they are going to take advantage of this. You know, imagine imagine a CEO going into the board and saying, "I've decided to lower drug prices. It's the right thing to do." That CAO would be gone the next day. Um, we have to make sure that our system channels people into the behavior that we want for the benefit of society. So how do we do this? I mean, I know you talk about in the book we have to, I guess, change laws on the federal and, and, and state level um, in order to make these kinds of changes so that these prices aren't escalating and escalating. But, you know, you mentioned two reasons, two things that are happening um, you know, in terms of the the middleman raising the prices, right? Is that what happens? The person, and, and let's, yeah. Sure. So maybe we can talk for a minute just about how how these secret deals work. Um, it sounds complicated, but it's all pretty simple. Drug companies are able to pay middle players, what we call them PBMs, as well as hospitals and some doctors, to make sure that cheaper drugs are left out. That's really all it is. The drug company pays everyone along the way so that lower-priced drugs lose. Um, and 
as you mentioned, it's, it's all wrapped up in secret deals between the drug companies and the middle players. Your health plan isn't allowed to secret, see the secret deal. The government and government auditors aren't allowed to see, see the secret deal. It's kind of a crazy system. So one of the, the first things um, that I like to say is that uh, markets grow best in the sun, and we need a dose of sunshine into this system. We cannot expect it to operate effectively if no one can see what's going on. That, that's a circumstance that breeds backroom dealings, and that, that isn't good for consumers and for society. So, so well, let me ask you, Robin. Do, so you're talking mm-hmm. about transparency, sure. transparency, yeah. and also, I guess, transparency in the context of our present political system seems like something that perhaps would be a very difficult goal to to uh, to obtain. Uh, so transparency in the pharmaceutical industry, how would that work so that we know about these deals and how they operate and who's making the money and who's not and who's going to get the, the you know, the uh, benefit and who's not going to benefit? So how do we do that? So, so I, I believe that there is extraordinary power in individual citizens and also in different actors in the system. It is very difficult to hide what one is doing if you have to put it out in the open. So specifically, transparency would mean that these deals shouldn't be held secret. Um, there are proposals out there saying, well, we want to know, we want to know a little piece of it or we want to know aggregate pieces. What I'm saying is, is absolutely clearly open the doors. You and I, our health plans should know what it costs to buy a drug. And let me explain how it happens right now. When your health plan um, pays for your drug, the health plan knows what, say, John Smith, what they paid when John Smith filled his heart medication at the, the pharmacy. But they actually don't know what the real cost of the price is um, because sometime later in the year, their, their broker, their middle player, their PBM, will hand them a nice check. And that check will take care of all of lots of rebates for lots of drugs and uh, lots of individual patients. So the health plan actually doesn't know what an individual drug costs. You can think of that as buying blind, and it's a crazy way to run any type of industry. That's not as it should be. Great way to hide secret deals, things that you and I would be unhappy about and probably regulators would be unhappy about too. We need to have transparency for what's happening on that side of the table. How do we get to this point? Is the pharmaceutical industry unique? Because you're talking, I mean, uh, is it is it unique? I mean, is it unique in terms of what, what it's doing and how it's able to get away with, with this, these kinds of pricings? It's like, as compared to any <clears throat> retail business. So uh, no one has ever suggested that healthcare spending is extraordinarily rational. Uh, but even by those standards, the system we have right now makes no sense. You asked how we got here. We got here with the best of intentions, which is often what happens in in government. Uh, But originally, the PBMs were supposed to negotiate with the drug companies to get better deals on the drugs for for you, the patient, and for the health plan. And they were paid based on how good a deal they got. And that sounds good. You know, I, I would bargain better if my pay were based on how good a deal I got. That was the idea. That was the structure. Unfortunately, the drug companies turned all of this on their head, and each year they would 
started raising the drug prices very high so that the PBMs could then show a discount and it would look as if they were getting a great deal. It's a little like a department store that raises the price um, of its items right before a sale to make the sale look good. Now, all of that might not be quite as bad if nobody paid that crazy high price, but, but people do. So 30% of us who have health insurance through our work have plans for which we have to pay a full uh, ride until we meet a deductible. That full ride is based on the super high prices. Others have plans that have what's called coinsurance, different from a copay, something that you have to put down every time you um, pick up medication. Coinsurance is based on that super high price. And of course, many of us don't have health insurance, or if we do have health insurance, we don't necessarily have prescription drug coverage. So lots of citizens are paying these, these super high prices. That's, that's the first problem. And of course, as you raise these prices every year so the PBMs can show more and more um, uh, profits across time, uh, the, even if you give a discount, you're still much higher because you've been elevating it year after year. So that's how does this compare? I'm going to interrupt. Mm-hmm. I just I think as you're sure. describing it, I, what about because a lot of people or many people try to or do buy their drugs, let's say in Canada, because the drugs are cheaper. So how does that work? What's mm-hmm. the what's the difference? I mean, obviously they have a very different system of healthcare. So, but just in terms of the pharmaceuticals, why are the drugs cheaper there? Well, Canada and other countries like like Europe, other ones in Europe, do have a very different system, and their prices are much lower. They do more coordinated buying and negotiating with the drug companies. They also, in some cases, have very different patent systems. It's harder to play these games if you aren't giving the drug companies extraordinary amounts of power to protect their drug and you can get competitors in. But there actually is a a problem, I think, lurking underneath, which is, to some extent, the United States subsidizes the cost of medicine around the world. It's much easier for another country to strike a hard bargain with a drug company if the drug company knows it's going to make most of its profit off of you and me in the United States. That dynamic is happening, and it's not necessarily good for American citizens. Well, you talked about patents, because that's another issue, obviously. The the whole patent game, I think you refer to it as a game, the U.S. patent game in terms of buying pharmaceuticals uh, or the high cost of, of drugs. Tell us how that works. Sure. So when you step back and look at the whole system and the secret deals, you can ask, how do the drug companies get the power to engage in these deals and to get the volume that helps them block out the cheaper drugs? And the answer is, well, we, the government, give it to them. We give it to them in the form of patents and in the form of about a dozen what are called non-patent exclusivities that can expand and extend their power. Drug companies have become adept at stringing these out, piling them on one after another after another so that the cheaper drugs have difficulty getting to market. Uh, I have some data in the book that I collected which shows that three-quarters of the drugs associated with new patents aren't new drugs coming on the market. They're existing drugs. We're just piling more protections onto the drugs that are there. So we're not getting innovation, the kind of innovation we would like to see. So as they change the patent, so they say when the patent runs out, then you can buy the generic brand and it's much cheaper. But I mean, you're saying that the patent runs out, 
they get a new patent for supposedly a new drug, but it's really the same old drug. Maybe instead of taking it once sure. a day, you take it twice a day, or they change the form that it's a pill or a tablet, it, that it, but it's really the same drug. It's the same drug, just in, in a different form. It may be a melt-away instead of a tablet or two-day-a-week instead of a three-day-a-week, but it's protected by a shiny new patent, and then that helps drug companies block the generics as they're trying to come to market. It gives them volume position. It helps them maintain these contracts. That's, that's a problem. The, the real problem from an innovation standpoint is that it doesn't cost very much to make a minor tweak in a medication. When you go from, generally, from a pill to a capsule or a melt-away or from two times a day to three times a day, generally that doesn't cost nearly as much in research and development for the drug company as it did to bring the original drug to market. So we're driving drug companies, or the system is driving drug companies, into these minor changes that, that don't do a whole lot for patients necessarily, um, but do drive the prices of the system through the roof. Well, usually the word from, at least the word that I hear, you know, from the drug companies or that they tell the general public is that uh, they have to, the drugs are, you know, the new pharmaceuticals or new drugs are expensive and it's all about the R&D if you, you know, in order to bring these, uh, you know, these drugs, to deliver these drugs to, to the, to us. Uh, it, it, it costs so much money, and that's why the prices are so high. But that's really not true. Is that what you're saying? Well, new innovative drugs or it's are inflated. expensive. They're expensive to make, but we're not seeing a lot of new innovative drugs. We're seeing um, about up to 80% of the market as just old churn. Even with the innovative drugs, the, the R&D numbers that the drug companies like to cite are wildly inflated. There's one quote from a pharmaceutical executive saying the billion-dollar price tag for developing a drug is one of the biggest myths in the industry, and it really is. So um, drug companies like to, in the studies, throw in all kinds of things to get to that number. My, My favorite is that half of the number comes from what they call opportunity costs. So it's a little like saying, I paid... $100 $100 for that suit, but I'm going to say it really cost me $2,000 because if I hadn't bought a suit, I could have bought a share of Google stock and look where I'd be now. That, that's not an appropriate way to measure how much it costs <laughs> to research and develop a drug. That, you know, that, that's just game playing with statistics. And you see all kinds of um, things piled on that just don't belong in these numbers. So, do you, uh, Robin, are the, these men and maybe some women sitting in the boardroom kind of chuckling? I mean, I'm picturing that CEO you were talking about uh, who would tell you said in the beginning of the interview that would be suggesting that they lower drug costs. Are they sitting there just kind of conniving about how to fool the American people and keep raising and raising the costs? And, and as long as they keep getting the monies back, however they get it back, they'll keep doing it. I mean, are they, is, you know, is, is that what's happening? No, I don't think that drug company executives are sitting in the boardroom chuckling. I know that the scientists certainly aren't. They're working very hard to try to develop new innovations for patients. However, the drug companies themselves are going to be subject to pressures of the market to need to show that they're making a profit. As long as we have a system that gives them the ability to do that, as long as we don't fix it and change it, 
they're going to walk right through the the great holes that we've created for them. And I don't think we should uh, expect anything differently. It's it's our responsibility as a society, it seems to me, to fix this system that we've created and say this is not this is not acceptable. This is not what we'll do. So let's. So what do we do? Let's talk, because you do talk about that in the book, obviously. It's not just about the problem, and I think you've stated the problem, obviously, really well, clear, very clear, very understand. We un- I understand it. We understand it. So what do we do? Exactly what do you do? What, what would one do? Because as you say, it, so, as consumers, it's our responsibility to do something about it. So what do we do? So in the book, um, I talk about four different changes, and they really are focused on, well, what the title of the book talks about, drugs, money, and secret handshakes. Yeah. They're focused on disrupting that system. The first is one we talked about before, which is sunshine. There's an old saying, sunshine is a great disinfectant, and I think it is, so transparency. The second is an approach that I call one and done. And the notion is that drug companies should have one period of protection for their drug, and that's all. And when it's over, it's over. And we could do that through the FDA drug approval system. We could tell drug company, at the time you get your approval, pick your protection period. Maybe it's one of the dozens of patents you have on this drug because it's taken a while to to get to market. Maybe it's your orphan drug exclusivity. Maybe it's your data protection. Whatever it is, pick one. um, And when it's done, that's it. So that's, that's really one and done, but it, it, it is, an, is an effort to say, yes, we do want to have a reward when drug companies invent life-saving and important medication, but that needs to come to an end so that generics can come in, cheaper drugs can come in, and drive the price down. So that's one and done. The third approach is a little bit more, more wonky, a little bit more professor-ish, but it's, it's pretty simple, and it is reform the patent system. So... All of these minor tweaks in the language of the patent system, I would simply call them obvious. They are obvious changes, and therefore they shouldn't be patentable. So Congress could simply decide to pass a very small piece of legislation that says, we wish to emphasize that these minor tweaks are obvious and therefore not patentable. That might go a long way towards moving out some of these gains. There are other smaller things that one can do to try to hold various players responsible uh, in, in the organization. But I'd like to move to, to one other uh, particular perspective, and this is something that came up when I was testifying before the House Ways and Means uh, Health Committee a few weeks ago, and that is that some of the behaviors we're talking about are subsidized by the government because of very attractive tax benefits for them. We definitely should not be doing that. We should, we should not be giving tax benefits for things that are essentially helping drug companies bolster their position and helping them lobby. You know, there, there are backdoor systems here that the drug companies are getting massive tax credits for. We shouldn't be doing that. So really, we should, we should take the, the government um, thumb off the scale. And then finally... Many of the drugs that are on the shelves today began with government funding at a university for the basic research. Now, along the way, the drug companies had to do a great deal to try to 
make it stable, to make it mass-producible, to have it fit the market and the patient's needs. So the drug company has contributed an extraordinary amount along the way, but so did the government at the beginning. So the government-granting agencies, such as the NIH, could put particular provisions in their grants about what drugs companies can and cannot do when they end up putting drugs on the market that were originally funded by you and me, the taxpayer. Otherwise, what happens is that that we we pay multiple times. So we pay at the time that um, the government funds this research. We pay when we buy the drug at the drugstore, and we pay again in taxes for government programs to support those who can't possibly afford what these prices have become. That's not a rational system. All right, so those are four very specific things that we should be aware of, at least, and then try and do something about. But you mentioned, I I don't know, did you mention lobbyists? Because it would seem to me in the pharmaceutical industry, there are big-time lobbyists in, 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 uh, in in, in Washington who don't want this to happen and who will try and fight against it. Uh, is that a, a correct assumption? So the pharmaceutical industry spends an extraordinary amount lobbying in Washington, D.C., and also in the state houses. In, uh, in Congress alone, last year, the pharmaceutical industry spent $270 million on lobbying Congress, and they had enough lobbyists to have something like one and a half lobbyists per member of Congress. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary avalanche of pressures. And uh, pharmaceutical companies are, are ecumenical. They, they spend both for the Republicans and the Democrats. They spend a, a little bit more on the Republicans in recent years, but that's just the profile uh, in Congress at the time. It is very difficult for legislators, whether at the federal level or the state level, to push back on that, on that type of power and that, that type of assault. On the other hand, um, many people these days are upset and frankly frightened about being able to pay for the cost of life-saving medicines. That type of citizen sentiment can help to move legislators towards something that's a better system. And I'm hopeful that those, um, that, that those citizens and their voices will be heard in this system. Well, you're, you're in the trenches. You're an attorney. You're down there. You've spoken to Congress. What's their reaction to you? And first of all, maybe we should go back a little bit. Just we don't have that much time left. But in terms when you started doing this research and really digging deep and finding out, you know, hey, what's really going on with these escalating costs of for uh, medications? Um, what was the response? I mean, how do they view so you? First, and, yeah. When I first started doing this research, I had I had an intuition about what might be going on, what must be going on. And I spent years trying to, to research it, figure it out, ask everyone I know, you know, people in industry, people in government, uh, people in the health plans. And the answer I universally got was, well, you may be right, but you'll never find it <laughs> because it's so <laughs> deeply hidden. And then, then over time, little bits and pieces started to sneak out. And it's like a little thread you pull and eventually the whole system unravels. And that's what allowed me to write this book and to try to write it in a way that I hope people can understand that makes it accessible so that people can see what's happening with their money and with their own system. 
Well, we do need your book. That's We have to be able to understand it, and it has to be put in terms that we understand. Because most people are like, well, I can't do anything about it. I don't really understand the system. But you do explain it very, really well in, in the book, and it is for all of us, for the general public. Um, so I do recommend the book. We only have a few minutes left. Um, talk to us about what's the next step for you after the book, just in a couple minutes, and then give us a website and um, where we can go to find out more information, not only about the book, but about the work you're doing. So for my work, I am hoping to go forward and to continue um, understanding and exposing how these games are played, trying to make it understandable to um, legislators, to regulators, to the press, to ordinary people, so that we can try to deal with the problems. That, that's the work that I've been doing for years, and it's the work that I hope to continue here. Um, I think, as I mentioned before, it's the citizens' voices that will make the biggest difference in this particular process. To find the book, again, it's called Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes. Um, it will be released Thursday, and you can find it on Amazon. Do you have a team who works with you? I do. I do. I run the Center for Innovation. Uh, we do a variety of things, but I have a, a team of 10 people working with me. They're just spectacular. They are researchers, and, and we also do a lot of free legal work for early stage life science and, and tech companies. So uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to work in a lot of very interesting areas in innovation. Robin Feldman, J.D., author of Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, the Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. And as you said, it comes out on Thursday, right? Yes, it does. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time. 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is OBGYN Adrian L. Simone. MD and author of The New Rules of Pregnancy, What to Eat, Do, Think About, and Let Go of While Your Body is Making a Baby. Quite often, the busy modern pregnant woman is shouting inside, just tell me what to do, as the available wealth of information can be overwhelming. Adrian Simone explains everything a woman can do to support what's happening inside her body, telling expectant mothers what they need to know and what they can stop obsessing about and over-researching. Her visually calming book is packed with clear, actionable, evidence-based advice that helps mothers-to-be and their partners prepare for change and take the best possible care of themselves. Dr. Simone, a renowned NYC, New York City OBGYN, who's been in practice for more than 20 years, blends traditional Western medicine with current integrative medicine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, doctor. Hi. Thanks for having me. But modern pregnancy, my first question is, what's the difference between modern pregnancy and what are we talking about? What are we kind of juxtaposing that against old pregnancy or what's the difference? Yeah, well, I think 
modern pregnancy really speaks to the way we envision pregnancy now, the way we treat pregnancy. Pregnancy is more of a team sport these days, if you will. <laughs> you know, before the mother kind of did everything and, you know, the, the partners weren't very involved. At this point, we are bringing teams in. Uh, so we have the obstetricians, we have the midwives, we have doulas. Um, we have now the partners being more involved. And I think it's, it's more of a team. So that's a very new way of looking at pregnancy. The other, the other thing is that many years ago, obviously, there were people who smoked and drank and these things. And there's a focus now on what you are putting in your body and on your body in pregnancy. So, you know, an attention to trying to avoid potential toxins and pesticides and things of that nature. All right. So that's the difference between the old and the new. I guess I'm thinking yeah. of myself sort of caught between the old and the new, but I think when I was having my three kids, not all at once, they were just starting to get into this, like, don't drink, don't smoke. Uh, and of course, nothing was moderation. Don't, well, don't smoke at all, Well, which is probably obviously a good thing. Don't drink any, you know, if you drink a glass of wine, that's the end of your pregnancy, which is not true. Exactly. But, uh, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, you're exactly correct. I think what happened was the pendulum really swung all the way from, you know, kind of just doing whatever to not doing, I mean, not even polishing your nails because you are so afraid that every little move you make will cause harm to your pregnancy. And so this book is a response to that. Uh, you know, too much information is not a good thing. Um, you know, the, the Internet is, is scary, and it does make you feel that you are sort of teeter-tottering and, and every single thing you do will, will cause a problem. And, and it caused a lot of anxiety for our patients. So I think our response to that was to write a book which is, very supportive and, and basically tells you the basics that you really should focus on without overwhelming the reader, uh, talking about so many things that, you know, she doesn't need to know. So I, I think, think that's, that's critical. Really I w yeah, I think that is really critical. I mentioned having three children. Now I have three new grandchildren, one a set of twins. And Congrats. So, uh, yeah, thank you. But I have been so involved. That's why I'm so interested in your book, because I think you really hit on these hot topics. And the one that I've noticed with all these and a lot of and this is another piece of it, a lot of women having babies, not just in their early 30s, but 35 to 40 and who are so used to being in control of their lives, their careers, uh -huh. and then they're pregnant yes. and feel out of control. And yes. uh, Yeah, and I want you to respond to this maybe even in more detail because this whole thing about th this too much information, this over-researching, um, and not just the women themselves but their partners. So yes. they are in a constant state of, of being on the Internet uh, and, you know, being terrified about every about everything when it would be better just to relax unless there is something serious. Um, how do you really overcome that besides reading your book? I mean, you have to read your book too, but it's a, it's a real issue. <laughs> well, thanks. 
yeah. I think I think the book is helpful, but I think it's a, there's a bigger issue in healthcare that that is exactly what you're talking about. There's, I think that the internet and having so much information, you know, at your fingertips and in your living room, gives people a false sense of control. In a, in a way that, well, if I just research enough, it's almost magical thinking, you know. If I just yeah. research enough or I know enough, that won't happen to me, right? And that's one of the pages in the book, you know, obsessing over um, what could go wrong doesn't make things go right. It's absolutely true. So I think what happens with the Internet is that, you know, it, sometimes the information's inaccurate, Sometimes, you know, one site competes with another as far as the information, you know, may, may not make much sense. I think moms and their partners are trying to struggle to make sense of all of this. And, and when you think about when, when people research health issues on the Internet, I don't know, I'm sure we've all done that, but somehow we always wind up dying at the end of it, you know? It's like you get to the worst scenario always when you research medical issues on the Internet. So that is a huge problem. So this is really about cutting through the noise and recognizing that you don't, know, have, to, you don't have to know everything. Your, your doctor is part of your team, and your doctor should tell you or your practitioner should tell you what's happening. And realizing that reading about every medical problem that can go wrong in pregnancy I mean, what is that? How is that going to help you? It's only going to make you anxious, and certainly you're not going to learn what you need to learn about a problem from a book or the internet, right? Your doctor's going to help you handle that. So there's no reason to be so for people to be so overwhelmed. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I think it's that's problem. I think that's the number one problem, and I guess your book is good because it really takes. We talk about very specific kinds of things from, you know, what to eat and mood and exercise, meditation, all of those kinds of things, uh, very specific kinds of things. Um, one, you mentioned the doctor. You want to be in, obviously in sync with your physician uh, in yes. terms of your pregnancy. But you mentioned a doula. What is a doula? Yes. I, I know what a doula is, but a lot of people don't know what a doula is. Yes, uh, doulas are non-medical professionals who are trained to understand normal labor and delivery. They cannot deliver you, they cannot examine you, but they can educate you both during your pregnancy, during labor and postpartum even, which is wonderful. They're a great support system. They know about lactation and things of that nature. But during, during delivery, they're especially helpful because we tend to rely on our partners in, deli in a delivery, <laughs> or some of us, and I think what happens is the partners are completely overwhelmed. I mean, they, they've never seen, you know, a, a, a delivery before. They, they've never seen labor so they don't really know what to do with that. And doulas normalize labor, and they teach you uh, breathing techniques. They coach you. Uh, they know the different positions that are helpful to try to ease your labor and ease the pain of labor. So they're really a wonderful help. If, 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 you, know, if you have doulas available to you, I, I highly recommend using a doula. 
So doulas are kind of the go-between, I'm using that word, between the physician or the midwife who's ever delivering the baby and you and your partner, and you're so right. I think that men have yeah. maybe taken on roles in pregnancy that they're not really prepared for because in the <laughs> and that they... Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but they think they are because they're armed with all this information. And if you do this and you do that, it's all going to work. But that's not true. <laughs> um. Exactly. And we talk about that, you know, yeah. just understanding that, it, you know, what you think it is, is not what it's going to be necessarily. So you have to be flexible. You have to relax into this transition in your, I mean, it's a huge transition for families and one of the things that we like to do in the book is include the partners and some things, you know, so the partners can understand what are the changes that go on in, in, in a woman's body and her mind, both during the pregnancy and postpartum. And this will help communication. And then the communication is better, and obviously the stress on the relationship is much less. So I think people can't possibly understand how their lives will change, but if they approach it this way, um, you know, again, much more with much more flexibility and calmness, and they de-stress as much as possible, I think that's going to be a really, really helpful thing. Yeah, I agree with you. Be less dogmatic about the pregnancy. I have yeah. one thing. That, I, I don't know if your patients say or say this, I guess, but I, I always kind of, when men say, we are pregnant, I'm always step back and thinking, I don't, we are not pregnant. There's only one person who's pregnant. We will be parents that, yes, both, but not we are pregnant. And I don't know if you discuss that with your patients or you see that as an issue, but I do. It, I think it, it yeah. Yes. I, I, I think it's, it, on the one hand, it's beautiful, right? Because, I mean, uh, my father, for example, was not in the delivery room for me. Right, so it's great that people are uh, that the partners and the husbands are trying to be part of the team. So I like that they say that, but by the same token, you know, it gives this false sense of things. Look, the mother is the mother, and there's and this is something I'm I talk to my patients when they're going to get pregnant about this. Look, don't go into this thinking that this is you know a fifty fifty situation here. I mean, I, I love equality, but this is not that, okay? You are the mother, and the baby wants you. And the father or the partner is not going to bond the same way you are initially, perhaps. And that is something that you need to understand. And most of the hard work falls on the mother, and all of the changes in the body fall on the mom. Right, and so all of the hormonal changes, all of the physical changes, um, and I think that's a really important point you make. I think yes. it's very, very important. I want I want them to be part of the team, but I don't. I want the the, the woman to understand that she carries the burden of of pregnancy, and yeah. and and you know, the, and and again, is the one the baby wants <laughs> after after yeah. it comes out. Well, as you say, I mean, you're using the word team, and there is a team. There's the doula, there's the physician, there's the mother, and there's the father. But being part of the team doesn't, the doctor isn't pregnant, and the doula isn't pregnant, and the partner isn't pregnant. I keep 
Correct. It's, right? So Yes, yeah, it's all on you you know that. You I having do know your that. mom. It's all <laughs> it's all on you. And what we can the best we can do is try to understand that and not be shocked. And as you said, we have this sense in our society uh, be, that we're in control of everything. And I try to explain to patients, you only think you're in control. The reality is we're not really in control of that many things. And we need to accept that and understand that. It would decrease our anxiety in life, right? And, yeah, and don't you think that when you think that you can control everything and women think that they're going to have a natural childbirth or they're not going to have drugs or an epidural or whatever, and then they have to for whatever reason or a C-section, um, it kind of sets you up for, you know, postpartum depression or feelings of failure or that you didn't do it the right way. So I think what you're saying, if you have realistic expectations, uh, yes. you, you won't, yeah, you won't set yourself up for that. You don't, con- you can't control everything. Um, yes, the baby controls how the yes. baby wants to come out. You know, and so you could do everything right, so to speak, and I'm putting that in quotation, you know, everything right during your pregnancy, and the baby will not cooperate and wants and, and doesn't want to come out the way you would like it to come out, right? And right. and so because labor is a fluid process, you know, it's constantly changing, and the the practitioners who are taking care of you are sort of synthesizing that information. At the time, it's really an art. Um, you can't possibly imagine that things are going to go your way absolutely. You, you just you just can't go into it because yes, a lot of women come out of it who have had uh, difficult pregnancies or difficult child birth experiences, and that is a risk factor for postpartum anxiety and depression, and also this perfectionism in the sense that we can control everything is a risk factor for postpartum depression. And there are so many more risk factors, but those are just some of them. One of the things that you mentioned in the book, and I know this is popular, um, is delayed cord clamping. Let's talk about that. What is delayed cord clamping? So delayed cord, you know, in the past, the baby would come out and we would just, you know, clamp and cut the cord but what we realized is that there's an, an equilibration that goes on between the placenta and the baby, meaning the cord is still pulsating blood to the baby and, again, equilibrating between the placenta and the baby. So what we've realized is that if we just let the cord pulsate and the blood go where it wants to, some of it will go back into the baby. And... What, and that takes, you know, approximately 30 seconds to five minutes, depending on, you know, how long the, it, the cord does that. And when we then clamp the cord and cut it, the baby has more, more blood volume, which supports its cardiovascular system. And what we have found, studies have shown that definitely in premature babies, that is definitely beneficial. We are not clear as to whether it's beneficial uh, in full-term babies, but we think it is, and it's certainly not harmful. So that is what, that's the trend now, and so a lot of women are putting that in their birth plan. 
you know, and, and, and obviously the safety of the mom and the baby come first. So if there's any other issue, and that's what we mean about flexibility, you could put it on your birth plan, but if there's any issue of safety, uh, the, the, the doctor will decide that that's, and that's not a good idea perhaps at the moment. So, you know, again, it's, it's a fluid process. What about some of the things, because this kind of brings us into this topic, you know, that people or couples or partners come in with common um, sort of things that the w- women w- and their partners want to do um, that may be trendy that you disagree with, that you strongly disagree with? Yeah, I, I, I disagree right now with eating the placenta postpartum because... You know, the placenta is a filtration organ. It's a lovely organ that feeds your baby and brings nutrients. But at the same time, it's filtering the metals and it's filtering bacteria and other toxins. So what, what women are doing, and it kind of makes sense why they would do it, because, you know, mammals, there are some mammals which, uh, which eat the, the placenta. Uh, so they're drying the placenta, and then they're putting it into capsules, and they're eating it as supplements. We have had a few cases of women getting infections from that. Um, but I certainly, so I can't really advocate that at the, at, the, at the moment. You know, obviously all of these things need to be studied, these new trends. And then there's another trend called uh, vaginal seeding. And essentially what that is is when the baby comes through the vagina, the baby gets, on, in its nose and mouth and on its skin, the uh, flora from the woman's vagina, and that helps the microbiome in the gut develop. And we know my, the microbiome is a big deal these days. So what people who have had C-sections had thought of is, you know, let's give the baby the same microbiome. So they take some of the vaginal secretions, and they introduce it to the baby's mouth and nose and skin in the hopes that it will help the microbiome develop in a healthier way. So, you know, that is also being studied at the, at, at the moment. But right now, we are not uh, advocating that just because it could also introduce infection into the baby. You know, so from the, the vaginal canal, you know, so we're, we're right now we're saying no. And the thing that determines the baby's microbiome probably more than anything else is breastfeeding if possible. All right. So those are the two things, eating the placenta, vaginal, yeah. I, I have a placenta story, just a quick one. We only have a couple of, th- well, we have a little more than that left, but uh, when I had my second son... I took the placenta home from the hospital and put it in the freezer. I, I'm not sure what I was going to do with it or we were going to do with it. But anyway, and my mother came to help to take care of my the, the, the baby and my older son. And she went in the freezer. And she I was not there, but my five-year-old was there. And she started to take the placenta out. She thought it was roast beef frozen. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was going to cook it, right? <laughs> but my five-year-old knew that it was the placenta. And he told yeah, she was going to cook it. So we ended up planting it under a tree and nourishing the tree. We didn't. That was... That was it. I don't know what 
but anyway, we brought it home. So I think um, that's fantastic. Yeah, put it under a tree. We love right. that. <laughs> Back to you know ashes to ashes. You know, right? Back exactly. To the ground. I think that's beautiful, and it's very meaningful. And you can even have a ceremony. Right, and, and very safe. Perfect. Exactly. Very safe. Exactly <laughs> very right. Safe. Yeah. Uh, you cover everything in your book. Really, it's it is. I mean, so your book because you, I, you know, I mean, there are so many books out there, and you don't know where to begin. But you really just uh, take us through the whole process, which is good, and breastfeeding, which of course is is I think that's critical. Um, you know, and that was. I one agree. Thing. This is a mom-focused yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, when you look at other pregnancy books, I think. And, you know, I'm not, this is in no way a criticism. Some of them are, are good, but I think there are, there's way too much information that is scary, overwhelming, and it's really focused on the baby. You know, a lot of them are sort of month to month. This is what happens, and then this is what happens, right. and this is what happens. You know, this is not like that, and, it, and, and you don't, you can read it differently. I mean, you could just read one chapter or even one page and just shut the book if you want, and it won't overwhelm you. I, I, I think the photography is beautiful in this book. I'm, I'm so happy that I think women's health care books have, are very unattractive, and when I, 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 you know, in fact, bordering on ugly, where they have, and this, you know. Right, we have 30 seconds left. I could go on sure. and on with our conversation, but you're absolutely right. They're kind of medicinal and that's not what yours is is very the new rules of pregnancy um you can buy the book online bookstores everywhere the new rules of pregnancy what to eat do think about and let go of while your body is making a baby and we've been talking to dr adrian simone md thanks so much for all the information just can you give us a website like in five seconds com or amazon com is where you can get the book or Barnes and Noble. So I thank you so much for your time. Happy yes. spring, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 